I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Being a fintech entrepreneur is hard, not just because of the tech or even because of the constant search for capital. Instead, it's the ideas that can make things challenging, grappling to find the imagination needed to think about the problems people have and the technological solutions that are necessary to solve them. But where does such imagination or creativity come from? Is it an epiphany or is it a process? And if it's either one, what are the inputs? And can entrepreneurs engineer innovation the same way they do a motherboard? And if so, what kind of production team do they need? Well, these are the kinds of questions Brant Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur, grapples with every day. As the CEO of Moves the Needle, he's written extensively on what enables entrepreneurs to learn and succeed and how startups should situate themselves competitively to realize and discover value. Now, I've heard Brant talk a couple of times where I was moved by his extremely thoughtful ideas about entrepreneurship, startups, and diversity, which, if you know anything about Silicon Valley, aren't always topics that meld together naturally for the industry. So, with so much happening in the national conversation on creative adaptation and business strategy in the age of the coronavirus, not to mention efforts underway throughout the business world to grapple with race and inclusion, I could think of few people better to stop by and share with our audience what it takes for firms to succeed when they're in the business of innovation. So we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. And away roll, just a rebel to the world with no place to go. And so we kick. Brent, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, great intro. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, excited to be here. So, you know, you've had a lot of really interesting uh, ideas. I mean, there's a reason why you're a New York Times bestselling author. And what I've found really striking are your ideas are almost anti-ideas concerning this notion of innovation. So in, in your mind, I mean, when you hear this buzz term innovation, what does innovation mean to you? And, and, and how has it sort of historically come to market? Yeah, so so innovation to me is creating something new of value for human beings at scale. And so, uh, you know, I think you allude to some of my talks about, uh, you know, let's stop with the word innovation until we are willing to stop and define it amongst each other so we all know that we're talking about the same thing. I think that it's an interesting time because, you know, back 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe even before that, the industrial age was chock full of technical innovation. And so this technical innovation really put our mindset around how do we bring innovation to market? And it's all really about technical risk. And so we use the scientific method, uh, even in engineering processes. But in, in the technical side, we use you know, this iterative approach to learning what works technically. During the age of technical innovation, technical risk is the biggest factor. You're really asking, can we build it? Well, so I don't 
we're, we're sort of not there anymore. So tech, I, I, I have this thesis that innovation starts like in the core. It starts in the R&D centers of large companies. It starts in the major university research programs. It's typically government funded, which is super interesting idea when you think about uh, our sort of libertarian view now towards what the government should be doing inside of our economy. And yet there's no industry, really no industry at all that you can point to that didn't get its primary start from large amounts of government money, either as a customer or simply as research grants or land, giving away free land to, uh, to natural resource companies. Uh, but anyway, uh, it starts in that middle, and as uh, the power of computing uh, rose exponentially, the the power of that innovation starts going out towards the edge, the edge representing us human beings, and now with our phones, we all have computers in our pockets. And so really, the it's not really about the technology innovation anymore, generally. If you're still a tech company like life sciences, or you're building new blockchain technology or new AI technology. Invention is still super important, but the vast majority of startups and the vast majority of innovation inside of corporations does not have to do with inventing new technology. Yet the processes that we use, which again, I think is a very industrial age process, are the same. So the way we structure human beings, the people that work, how we bring these things to market generally are done the same way as the last century in this century, even though we're not in the industrial age anymore. And I think that that is actually causing a lot of angst, uncertainty, feelings of disruption and, and, and failure. That is so interesting because what, what you're saying, like everything else, innovation itself has its own life cycle. Right, I mean that 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 for whatever we think about the novelty of technology, technology itself matures. I mean, technology and the tech industry is still an industry, and all industries over time can mature. Even where you get new inputs and new ideas and new technological sort of innovations, um, uh, that, that ultimately there's a maturing. And you know that would be whether or not you're talking about even you know social technology or even financial technology. You know what? What then does it mean if, if if innovation is no longer technical, right? If it's no longer as much going to be defined by the newest widget or the or or, or the newest infrastructure, right? Like, what is then innovation once you move past sort of this primordial or 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 once you move past the adolescence of technology? What then does innovation become? So innovation ends up being on really on the value that we bring to the edge that I described. And so if you're, you're, you're basing your new products or services or whatever based upon the technology that's matured, but now we're providing value to the very end user. And so if we look at trying to provide value to the very end user, you know, we've got, what, 7 billion people on the planet. That's sort of 7 billion opinions about what that technology ought to do, or 7 billion ways that you might be able to provide value. Now, that's an exaggeration, but what we do now in order to come up with the innovation is look at different patterns in that those people. And so we're looking at people that have the same need, and then we'll share solutions with each other for that same need. And so even the old school ways of how we do market segmentation don't work anymore because uh, in the first book, The Lean Entrepreneur, we, uh, our artist, 
fake Grimlock had a, you know, a great picture where he's, he's like, if you're building a square hat, then you're trying to find blockheads, not anybody that's between the ages of 20 and 45 and, and they wear ball caps or something like that, right? I mean, so you're looking for this community is another way, a good way to think about it, who share the same needs and will refer solutions or that address those needs. And that's my market segment. And if you imagine, again, there's millions of them depending upon the needs that you're trying to solve. And so to me, innovation is based upon understanding those needs. It's not about the technology, but the risk of your new innovation is based upon does that, that group actually have the need and do they care at all about what you're building? So no longer is it, can we build something that's not the biggest risk? The biggest risk is, should we build this? You know, fintech in your model would be identified as coming in quite literally at a point in time where general finance has really matured and, and even general tech has started its maturation. Uh, when you think of Things like uh, marketplace lending, crowdfunding, robo-advising, cryptocurrencies are a bit of an otter duck, but they're all coming in at a point in time where legacy systems have been doing their thing for a while, and in some instances, hundreds of years, like banking. Uh, But what onlookers have seen is that there's still a lot of people who are not being reached effectively. And so the fintech entrepreneur steps in and the value proposition being presented isn't, hey, let's let's start from scratch or, or let's start in a place where there are no actors at all. But in, it's instead, how do we situate our technology in a way that accesses new people or people who have not been adequately served uh, by the legacy system to get that incremental gain? Uh, but at the same time in this space, you have the entrepreneur who has to operate or should operate, as you describe, on a lean basis, like sort of in a very cost-conscious way. Yet, what does that mean to be a lean entrepreneur against the backdrop of maturing industries that are still subject to new innovations? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I, so the very first startup I was in was Tumbleweed Communications. And this was back in the, I I joined them in the late 90s as they were pivoting from really, they were making a consumer-based competitor to Adobe Acrobat, actually. And they were very popular. Um, But they pivoted to this platform that ended up, we ended up selling this secure messaging platform that hosted some of the uh, startup trade companies back in the day, Daytech and E-Trade. And they were using our technology to do trade confirms. And it was too early. They actually had patents on on, uh, unique documents for unique end recipients. That's like like generated by a database these days, right? I mean, so even though they own the patent, in the end, everybody just created their own system because it was was just the technology could do it. And and so I, I think that's an example of technology maturing. So you can have the vision, but it's just too early. And then and then the technology matures and settles down, and now somebody builds an application on top of that, and everybody's all like, oh, yeah, perfect, exactly what I was looking for. So, so being a lean entrepreneur, actually, it doesn't really prevent you from being too early, but it maybe allows you to survive if you're too early. 
And so the lean part of lean entrepreneur is not really, you know, be small or don't spend money. It's about reducing waste. And so it's a it's about like not building a bunch of stuff because you have a great idea and yet it ends up that you're too early. So the practice of being a lean entrepreneur really starts with uh it's a sort of an extension of ideation. Instead of just coming up with an idea, I have to posit who I think my early adopter is. So who's lining up outside of Best Buy to get my product? Again, it's not demographics-based. If you went and looked at the people that were lining up outside to get the iPhone, you know, back in the day, you know, you wouldn't be able to describe them just with demographics. There's something about that human being and the way they're wired that they had to have it first. So when we're thinking about fintech or or any startup really it's the idea can't just be you know a piece of technology or even just an app or whatever it is you're developing it has to be like who's my early adopter because they're the ones that are going to be the first to recognize the need without you there and so if you find them now you've got those people who will partner with you to develop the solution to that idea and maybe that allows you to do, uh, you know, to monetize it and keep your business alive. Now, if you go and raise a bunch of money because somebody else in the investment community sees that you have stumbled upon an idea that seems great, they might force you to scale before the market's ready and you will go out of business. You will fail. You'll, and that happens to startups, right? A lot of the investment, it used to be venture capital was in order to keep you going until the market was ready. Now it's like, can I flip my shares and make a lot of money? And so I, you have to find the right partner. If you're, if, you, if you're too early, you better find the right investment partner because they got to be in it for the long haul. And they're still out there, but they're more difficult to find. But the, the idea to answer your question, the lean entrepreneur is, how do I go and get empathy for those early adopters to understand that they really have the needs? And how can I start developing solutions that... Uh, Run, I can run experiments to, to, to validate that they, they really need this or want this. And I can, I can concentrate what I build, the MVP, on what they need now, on what they're willing to pay for now. And once you have established that, hopefully you have some revenue, now you can start looking for where are the bigger opportunities and how do I, how do I scale. But again, depending on timing, you might not be able to scale right away. It's interesting, you know, sort of looking at at really as your early adopter as, as almost a kind of a piece of your capital structure along with the sort of VCs, you know, in terms of at least keeping you afloat. I mean, you, you've had a lot of conversations um, and you've talked also a lot about diversity and and and, and sort of the startup uh, mentality and innovation. Uh, where where exactly does does diversity fit into this process of value creation? I get this feeling that there are some people, especially sort of in the startup world, who they sort of believe themselves to be open and and really view the world in sort of this, I don't know, cliche meritocracy type of way. I think there's a lot of stuff like that that they don't really they, they don't really get. But I also think that if you just look at it for like, okay, just give them that argument for a moment. In my view, this whole world where we're trying to innovate on the edge, we're trying to create value for the edge, is too complex for any individual to hold in their head. And I think this, this is why we have the rise of teams. 
So agile is fundamentally about empowering teams to go solve problems. And so, the, so, so one part of the solution to this complexity is forming, you know, sort of the classic two pizza team, because what they're all going to do is view different parts of the puzzle. They're going to be able to create the larger context since each individual can't hold that whole context. And so there's a, you know, an ancient Buddhist parable that the, the blind men and the elephant, right? And so that, you know, you've got seven blind men and they're all touching different parts of the elephant and they actually start fighting each other because they don't believe each other what they're saying because it doesn't match what they're, what they're experiencing, right? So the positive, the agile side of that would be, no, we're describing and we're working as a team. So we know that we're describing different parts. And in the end, what we're going to come up with is that it's an elephant, Right. So step one is like, okay, we need teams. So step two is, if you're seven blind men and you're trying, to, you're trying to piece this together, is a diversity of experience, a diversity of knowledge, a diversity of how even one thinks, a diversity in how one communicates, I would argue is going to get you to the elephant sooner than seven people that are very much alike. And so in my view, even if you if you're looking at the world in terms of like, you know, I'm open to everything and meritocracy and all this kind of stuff. How we look, our age, our income, our experiences, our knowledge, where we come from, immigration, all of these, these ends up being pretty fairly accurate proxies to the diversity of, of experience and knowledge that we'll all admit would be valuable in creating value for a very diverse. 7 billion people on the planet. And so to me, I think you could take a very logical, rational view of why we should seek diversity. What you're saying is, 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 is really neat because what you're, you're, you're articulating, right, is uh, a very concrete way of looking at something. You know, you, there are, there's McKinsey studies and Bain studies, you know, that, that say, you look, you know, when you have different kinds of people, whether or not they be women or minorities or whatever on your team, you know, you, you get better returns on, on capital, returns on, 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 on investment. But you're sort of making it more, more concrete. Although it does, right, I think it, it's in some ways counterintuitive um, to many people because, one alternative uh, approach is, well, if, if you get a team, there, that means you have to coordinate with more people and you have to listen to more people. And instead of viewing the team as a system for innovation, right, there's this sense of the, the, the team as somehow um, kind of stifling the execution of, of projects. And, you know, which leads to particularly for, for smaller companies, you know, startup companies, um, lean entrepreneurs and, and the like, you know, does, does being a diverse startup in and of itself require uh, innovation? I mean, like, like how exactly can and should a startup sort of think about, you know, this, you know, value creation process and, and the diversity that's embedded in it? And to innovate in a way so that's part of its its business strategy. Yeah. So I think that the I think obviously just throwing a team together probably doesn't change a whole heck of a lot. And and I really point back to um, the original uh, Agile Manifesto. And of course, uh, you know, it talks about what are the responsibilities for a functional team. 
And of course, it was geared towards software development. But I really think the trend is, is that this is how companies are going to be structured, is based upon agile. And I, I don't know that anybody's completely figured out the structure, but there's a, you know, a General McChrystal wrote a book called Team of Teams. And I don't even know if he uses the word agile, but it really, his team of teams is really how do you organize uh, uh, layers of sort of these, of these agile teams. And I don't know, again, I'm not sure he got it exactly right, but there are people that are working on it and companies that are actually doing it. Um, I think that the, the tricky part is, uh, so what I teach, uh, the lean entrepreneur is, is really this combination of agile plus design thinking plus lean startup. And so the agile portion gives you the, the principles and the context for creating and managing a functional team and how do you actually empower them so that they're self-organized and so that all people have input and, um, and how you check in with, with people to see how they're doing. And, and some startups do that on a daily basis. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's this idea that I describe agile as being, you know, how often do you need to, as a team, you know, lift up your heads away from your work and take in new information from, from, you know, other parts of the company or from the economy, or there's a pandemic going on or whatever it might be, but take in new information. And because we're running in these sprint modes, we can say, okay, should we change our plans based upon what we've learned? And so I think even just sort of that cadence allows people to start providing their input based upon their diversity of experiences. And I, I it's just, it starts breeding this type of communication um, that makes those teams potentially more functional. So if you combine the, the structures of agile and you combine some of this empathy and leading by example and vulnerability, and then do some of the, the empathy work that's in design thinking. So we're out there learning about our, our customers and, and understanding what their needs are. And we're using Lean Startup to, to establish what metrics we should be tracking. And here's the experiments that we can run. That's, that's a pretty powerful combination. And the exact combination is really up to the startup and the culture that they're trying to create. Well, well, I'm going to sort of leave with, with, with two big themes that are really reshaping sort of businesses and, and, and sort of how they fit into, into your model of, of sort of agile and also lean businesses. You know, uh, number one, you know, I, I was struck um, when, when sort of reading over, over some of your ideas and, 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 this, and listening to them here on, on agile um, businesses by the fact that in the age of a coronavirus pandemic, you know, companies have to be much more agile, right? They have to be much more agile in terms of how they're staffing their companies, much more agile in terms of being much more decentralized and much more, you know, flat, you know, and, and, and sort of reconceptualizing what the team means, which leads to questions as to sort of where where does then or does this create sort of more uh, opportunities for diversity or or not? And then, you know, the, the, the other big sort of meta theme going on in, in, in the country, particularly after um, the death of George Floyd, is this sort of conversation on inclusion and, and, and race, you know, which is both a, a moral, but it's also this economic kind of conversation. I mean, I mean when you look at the, the, the traditional uh, or, or, or the longstanding, really, sort of absence of diversity in Silicon Valley is not exactly the most uh, diverse place in the world. You know, how do you look at those two sort of developments playing themselves out um, there, not just for those, like, you know, the large, huge tech companies, but but really for the startups and, and for the startup culture? Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a prognosticator, to be honest. And it's one of those things where, 
you know, there was a lot of talk uh, back in March and April about, you know, things are changing and they're going to change forever. And to be honest, I was pretty skeptical, uh, you know, having lived through 9-11, where there was a lot of powers that be that in an, almost in a, a condescending way were telling us how everything has changed. And, and really very quickly, the big companies and, and the government purposely tried to get sort of the consumer class back to the way they were before as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, since, since the botched, the botched uh, response to the virus, so now we literally don't know when it's going to end, and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, there are some fundamental changes going on. But I tell you what, you know, I'm just... Uh, I tend to be an optimistic person, but I also, I can sit there and watch and see how, you know, even, you know, Democrats and corporations start to co-opt some of that stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's painful and disheartening, and I'm just hoping we can, we can see it through. I think that the opportunity is that there's something in human beings that when they're when they're hiring, they they naturally are going to hire people that look like themselves. And and I think that uh, there's a lot of rationalization that goes on after the fact about why it was done that way. And uh, you know, one quick example is 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 that you know qualifications to do a particular job is not a continuum; it's a threshold. And so uh, I saw this tweet where, where this guy was going, well, of course these companies are, are hiring uh, Ivy Leaguers instead of, you know, Cal State. You know, the, these Ivy Leaguers are, come from way better programs and la da da you know, sort of on and on. And a bunch of Ivy Leaguers came back and said, you know, actually Cal State is my boss because it's not really about that, right? And the point really is, is people naturally think that if you go to XYZ school, if you've crossed this threshold, you should look at all of those other characteristics and the people that are at the top of that particular threshold makes them more qualified. And it doesn't. It's a threshold. Once everybody's passed the threshold, they're equally capable. And so if you get to the mindset where, where you believe that, then I, I also think that there's a distance factor with the remote stuff that maybe it breaks that tribal connection where I need to hire somebody that looks like me or who was in my fraternity, even though uh, on a different college campus or what, or went to the same school. I don't I honestly don't know, Chris, but I think that there's, there's no doubt that the black lives matter movement has forced people to, to be more, self-aware and look at themselves deeper than they have in the past. I think that that's fundamentally true. And I'm hopeful that in that self-reflection that they're doing, they are able to see that, you know, racism isn't just you belong to the KKK. It's, and, and when somebody says that there's systemic racism, it isn't, it isn't, a criticism of individuals. Like I don't, I, I don't like, you know, beat myself up because there's systemic racism. I mean, I, 
I make the realization that I need to do something active in order to, to, to break that system. And frankly, startup entrepreneurs should have that mentality anyway. That's the difference between good startup entrepreneurs and non-entrepreneurs, right? Is that something inside of them says like, oh, no, wait a second. I can't just sit around and wait for that problem to be solved. That's an opportunity for me to go solve that problem. And I have to do something active about it. And there's a little, there's a flip of a bit there that it just doesn't come to everybody about this. Oh, wait a second. And a matter of fact, it doesn't always come to me. Like it occurs to me every once in a while, like, oh no, I got to go do something about that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, Chris, that we've we've got more people on board that realize that there has to be action taken. And, and I think that there's evidence for that. Brent, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. We at Fintech Beat have been working hard to highlight the importance of diversity, in part because, well, it's important and reflects our own global and wildly diverse audience. But it's also been a matter of learning about not only what we think fintech will be as time goes on, but really how fintech must be given the heterogeneous needs and demands of the 21st century consumer of financial services. And what Brant seems to be saying is that although the substance of innovation always changes and evolves, one element of the process shouldn't. Namely, making sure inputs and ideas don't go untested and that one keeps their eye on the ball when it comes to the customers a business wants to help. In short, innovation depends, like everything in life, on hard work. And part of the hard work is testing the tires and making sure you get enough creative friction to develop hunches, to refine strategies, and make sure products speak to consumers in new ways. But you can't make that happen if everyone thinks or looks the same. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.